Tyler. Yes. I need you to put this on your head. <laughs> what? You're going to put this on your head. Can you describe the contraption yeah, that so you put on your head? This is a, uh, a cardboard <laughs> box. Looks like it was some sort of, uh, you know, maybe an Amazon package at one time. Uh, and it's been written on. You can plainly see the cardboard in the address label, but it's been written on with black and red markers. Things like rock coaster, uh, walk this way, kiss you sassafras, you know, rock on, and drugs on one side. Uh, and there's a, I guess what's some sort of key hook or maybe a, a, a bar you'd hang your coats on that has been rigged in here to hold the phone and act as handles. Wow. When you play once it's on your head, be careful. Okay, so I'm seeing a gigantic uh, a red electric guitar, you know, the size of a building. And now I'm in some sort of strange chain link uh, a fence, a waiting area. There's a roller coaster uh, that I'm apparently just chomping at the bit to get on, but I'm behind a fence. All right, here we go. I'm finally in. We're emerging from a dark tunnel. We're in some sort of neon hellscape. Uh, it's still pretty dark. We're going through the Hollywood sign. We're headed to the Civic Center. <laughs> Does that say Interstate 5? It's very specific. We're zipping around, a lot of road signs, some palm trees that are very two-dimensional. What was the budget on this roller coaster? Oh, there's a merge up ahead. <laughs> I gotta say, I remember riding this, but the theme, I didn't realize how kind of lame it is. It's just about driving. You're just driving fast. This is Deep Dive Divas. Each episode, myself and a guest diva listen to every blessed studio album by an artist of their choosing and share our findings with you. My guest this episode is Tyler. Tyler is a fantastic graphic designer. The biggest fan of Weird Al Yankovic I have ever met. And one half of the podcasting duo, Nostalgia. You can and should check out his show using the show notes below. <laughs> Tyler, why did you choose Aerosmith for today? So Aerosmith is one of those bands that I definitely heard a lot of as a kid. I didn't always know that I was listening to Aerosmith, but you know, movies like uh, Mrs. Doubtfire that feature Aerosmith on their soundtrack, uh, Armageddon, you know, and they had a sound that definitely intrigued me as a kid. But uh, you know, I always wanted to dive a little deeper, and this was the perfect opportunity. Aerosmith starts off in Boston in 1970. Um, even though Joe Perry and Brad Whitford, uh, the two guitarists of the bands, they are the only members who are from Boston, oh. which is interesting because they will later totally be conflated with the city of Boston. Steven Tyler is the lead vocalist. The aforementioned Joe Perry is the guitarist and occasionally vocalist. Tom Hamilton plays bass. Joey Kramer plays drums. And again, Brad Whitford also plays guitar. Early on in their career in the 1970s, they have over 100 hits just in that decade alone. They have 25 gold albums, 18 platinum albums, and 12 multi-platinum albums, with over 150 million records sold total. Whoa. Before Aerosmith comes together, <clears throat> they are members of different, basically, you know, local bar bands. And all of these bar bands have extraordinarily lame names. And... I want to play a game with you now Ooh. called Aerosmith Former Band Names or Jane Torville and Christopher Dean Ice Dancing Performance Names. Okay, I'm ready. Number one, 
Song of India. There's no way that's a band name, because if it is, it's so misguided to name your band the word song in it. It's just awful. So I'm hoping that's an ice dancing. It is indeed. Number two, chain reaction. That feels like Aerosmith's kind of style, so I'm going to go early Aerosmith. It is early Aerosmith. Number three, encounter. Okay, this one could go either way. I'm going to say ice dancing. It is ice dancing. Number four, the strangers, but spelt S-T-R-A-N-G-E-U-R-S. It's got to be early Aerosmith. That is early Aerosmith. And five, jam band. (laughs) Okay, this was obvious, but I felt like I needed to point it out that they did this. Uh, As much as I'd love to see the ice dancing called jam band, which maybe has like like a fish soundtrack to it while they're dancing, it's got to be Aerosmith. Five for five. I am thoroughly impressed. I wish I could be as good as I am at that, at, you know, any useful skill. So Steven Tyler was actually a drummer before he was a vocalist. And Joe Perry and the bassist Hamilton, not to be confused with... The musical musical Hamilton Hamilton. was not their bassist. (laughs) The entire entire cast of Hamilton (laughs) was not the bassist of Aerosmith. They're in two separate bands. So Steven Tyler's playing drums in The Strangers with a U. (laughs) And eventually... Hamilton and Perry will be playing in a band called Jam Band. <laughs> and in 1970, Steven Tyler is at one of the shows and he says, why don't we merge these two? Except I don't want to play drums anymore. I want to be the frontest man there ever was. They're like, okay. And then naturally they all move in together. They basically spend their days just getting high, playing music and watching the Three Stooges. So immediately, I like some of what they're doing. Not I can I do a little bit of that, but um, they're doing that right off the bat. So even by oh, the, yeah. before their first album, they're already deep into the drug yes. scene. Okay. Joey Kramer, the drummer, came up with a name in high school. Yeah. What does it mean? So there is a Sinclair Lewis novel entitled Aerosmith, but as an A-R-R-O-W. The thing an archer might shoot. They make arrows. Is that an Arrowsmith? I haven't read it. Joey Kramer says, no, 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 no. This is not where I got the name from. Despite the fact that they all read it in high school. (laughs) And it seemed very much like Joey. Come on. He says that it is a derivative of Harry Nilsson's album entitled Aerial Ballet. Spelt A-E-R-I-A-L. And that somehow influenced him in creating the name Aerosmith. The band doesn't like it. They instead want to be named either Spike Jones or even cooler, The Hookers. Oh, man. (laughs) I didn't think it could get worse than Aerosmith, but I think they made the right decision. They finalized their lineup in 1971, and it's going to remain those five guys who I talked about already and their burgers and their fries. And they're only going to change for a five-year period between 1971 and 2020, which is That's pretty a- unusual and impressive. In 1972, um, their manager basically gets a hold of the president of Columbia Records, Clive Davis. He agrees, I'm going to come and see you guys play at Max's Kansas City. The trouble with that was they were not booked on the bill to play at Max's <laughs> Kansas City that night. So, um, Max's Kansas City maintains to this day that they are the only band that paid money to get onto the bill. Joe Perry said, We were uptight, afraid to make mistakes. We were total novices with no idea what to go for. And when when the record executive does come and hear them play at Max's Kansas City, they are signed. And in 1973, they put out their debut album, Aerosmith. And they were all, as I just said, Joe Perry said, they were so nervous 
through this whole process that Steven Tyler tried to imitate like an old blues singer in his mind. Um, today, he refers to it as his Kermit the Frog phase, <laughs> where it's a very like kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, this is their first album and they feel like they blew it. It does produce hits such as Dream On and Mama Kin, which will later be covered by Guns N' Roses. They'll come back later. My Yummy Yummy song is Dream On. I love this song because I think Steven Tower's voice sounds great on it. The guitars sound almost like a harpsichord in in how clean they are. It's They're not overusing distortion, which I think there was a big tendency to do in hard rock in the 1970s. To me, this seems like the most established sound that they had ever put together in their career. And it's incredible that it's it's on their first album, it's right? It's track three on their first album. It's just also maybe it sticks out to me because it's so much better than everything else on the album. It's like... It's like if a kid turns in a paper and like one paragraph is like clearly plagiarized and the rest is not. And you're like, hmm, something's fishy here. And it goes multi-platinum eventually. But they view this as a total failure. And it's such a 1970s thing to look at your album going platinum (laughs) and saying, this was a flop. (laughs) So after they have Dream On go to number 59 on the Hot 100, they're very disappointed and they start really rehearsing and and devoting most of their lives to just trying to make this band sound good. They, they hate how that first album sounded and they're so disappointed with huh. it. Which is interesting because I feel like the sound doesn't change all that much on the subsequent album. Oh, for the next few, absolutely not. <laughs> they will eventually uh, go to a famed uh, music studio in New York City called The Music Plant. They're still just as nervous as before, but they're taking more drugs to try to self-medicate that nervousness, which is a great combination. This record does hit the Billboard Top 200 chart. It charts at 74. This is Get Your Wings, right? Yes. And this is the first record that will be produced by a man named Jack Douglas, who is going to be the producer through the most albums in their career. And he, he will even step up and play various instruments throughout the process. Following this, the band goes on tour. And according to their producer, Jack Douglas, they just get their chops down because they are touring so much and they become much better musicians. In 1974, they're going to go in the studio to record their third album, Toys in the Attic. And um, Jack Douglas says this is a much more sophisticated record, especially compared to the first two. Joe Perry said, our first two albums were basically comprised of songs we'd been playing for years live in the clubs. With Toys in the Attic, we started from scratch. Making this record, we learned to be recording artists and write songs on a deadline. And when they formally enter the studio in 1975, they only have half an album ready to go. So the rest of it has to be written on the spot in the studio. Nothing like waiting till the last minute. Now, Walk This Way is on this album, and this is going to help them out later on down the line, but right now we are talking about the original cut of Walk This Way, so there's no rapping on this version. (laughs) Years prior to this, they were in Honolulu, Hawaii, and they were opening up for the Guess Who? Uh, uh, No, it's the Guess Who is the band. Oh, I'm not guessing. They're opening up for the Ice Capades. Joe Perry starts riffing on this thing. The uh, Steven Tyler runs over the drums and he starts banging on it. I guess he, you know, missed missed his old role, right? And they're just sound checking and goofing around, and they kind of pocket this for a while. When they come around to Toys in the Attic, he digs it back out and he's he's playing it again. The band loves it, and they they start working on it. They're kicking it around. They're going out, and they see the classic Mel Brooks movie, Young Frankenstein. And there is a scene in which Igor 
says to Gene Wilder, Dr. Frankenstein, walk this way, like to follow mm-hmm. me. And then Gene Wilder proceeds to imitate the way that Igor walks and starts limping. And they think this is hilarious. And that is why the song is entitled that. I can't believe. I know. I'm disappointed there's not more Three Stooges that creep into their lyrics. So Steven Tyler is inspired when he sees this movie. He then turns this into a song about a high schooler losing their virginity. You know, clearly a straight line between those uh, those two events. The band basically said, we want to record this tomorrow, write lyrics tonight. So according to Steven Tyler, he spends all night writing the lyrics, hops in the cab to go to the music studio, and leaves the lyrics in the cab. The band calls bullshit on this. So he says, fine, I'm going to go, I'll go rewrite them. I'll show you guys. And he goes into a stairwell in the music studio and writes the lyrics on the wall and then goes and gets a legal pad, copies it down, and then goes and sings. So we may never know the original. There's a New York City cab driver somewhere who, who he knows the truth. The truth is out there. I want to believe. Sweet Emotion is another hit that I would argue is really ahead of its time. This sounds like a song that would fit much better, I think, in the 80s or 90s. Mm. Um, But this is 1975. The bassist, uh, Hamilton, again, not to be confused with the musical, I want to make that very clear. Thank you. He basically writes this to be a guitar part, that famous bass line, Mm -hmm. and then they're like, no, just go back to your instrument, play it on bass, and we'll make it the intro piece. And it is very much about the tension within the band, and even um, the tension between their girlfriends, many of whom they're going to marry later on. Yeah. And there's um, that that's essentially what it all boils down to. You See Me Crying um, is perhaps their most ambitious song on the album. It has a full orchestra. takes them a really long time to record and they're very upset throughout the process of recording this. Columbia Records loves it. They're like, yes, orchestral music. We, we're super into this. A decade later, because Steven Tyler was so on drugs at this time, he hears this on the radio and he turns to Joe Perry and says, we got to cover this song. To which Joe Perry responded, it's us, fuckhead. Bull Moose Jackson's Big Ten Inch Record is covered on this album. Got me the strangest woman. Believe me, this chick's no cinch. But I really get her going when I take out my Big Ten Inch record of the band. Oh, this is a cover. Yes, it's not original. And they sneak these in a lot. A lot of old blues covers. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, now you do. So shut up. (laughs) My yuck icky song is Adam's Apple. This is the one that, like, it's an earworm in the worst way possible. I feel like it's so repetitive. It's a harbinger of every horrible thing they're going to do with their their music. And it's just, he, he has one good line. It's not even that good, but I think he thought it was really good about a uh, uh, love at first bite. And he says it so many times that you're like the first time you're like okay slightly clever line and then he just drives it into the ground and i just wanted to die and it's so early in their career the album comes out to mixed reviews uh but it will go up to number 11 on the billboard top 200 you don't seem impressed no i mean sweet emotion will make it up to number 36 on the hot 100 and walk this way goes up to number 10 Impressive for writing on the uh, the stairwell wall. And this will actually be their most successful record 
in contemporary standards. So they sell 8 million records that year. Many of their records will go on to become, you know, double, triple, mm-hmm. quadruple, all the way up to double diamond. This is their most successful record that ever came out at the time. And they definitely start copying themselves in this template that they make here, I guess, because it was such a success. The following year in 1976, they put out their album Rocks. You could say they get their rocks off into the public. The record plant, the music studio they're recording at in New York City has a mobile recording truck, which they drive into their rehearsal space called The Warehouse, spelled W-H-E-R-E, The Warehouse. Jesus Christ. And that is how they record the majority of their album in this truck in a warehouse. This is like when you give blood and they, they do the blood mobile. Sure, but instead it, you're doing drugs. Well, yeah. well, you still There's still needles going into people's well, yeah. arms. Yeah, my point is it's much less comfortable. Like I always prefer to be in a, like a YMCA gymnasium versus the blood mobile. It's cramped. It's, you know, an engine idling can't be good for the, the recording uh, fidelity. On this particular record, Joe Perry and Steven Tyler are insanely strung out to the point where they are no longer able to really produce music, which allows Tom Hamilton, again, the bassist, not the putting the Tom musical. before it really helps differentiate. Normally you were just saying Hamilton. But Frankly, I forgot Tom. his first name oh, okay. but on this album. He and rhythm guitarist Brad Whitford step up and they start having a lot more input on the songs, even writing their own songs. Would you say the band based on that? What was going on here was a little on the rocks at this point. Moving on. <laughs> One track on this album, Back in the Saddle, is a reference to the Gene Autry song Back in the Saddle again. And they desperately wanted to work images of the romanticized Old West into it. Joe Perry ties a bunch of bells and tambourines onto Steven Tyler's boots, and they make him walk around the studio recording it. They desperately want a bullwhip on this album, a bullwhip sound, which they buy a bullwhip, and all the members of the band spend hours trying to get it to crack, and they can't do it. Instead, keep whipping themselves and each other and end up kind of hurt through this process. Mm. And eventually, their producer says, we could just do this with an extension cord, and he just takes an extension cord and does it on the first go. (laughs) This song is about cowboys and sex. That should have been the opening line of the song, I think. I'm also surprised Steven Tyler couldn't make a whip sound with his lips. Finally, somebody takes down Steven Tyler's big mouth. No one thought to do that before. On the track Sick as a Dog, Tom Hamilton, the bassist, starts playing bass on the first half of the song. Then he switches to guitar, and Steven Tyler then ran up and played bass for the rest of the song. And what we hear is exactly that process, which is done in one take, and they just said, print. Why? Drugs. Listeners, if you could see the amount of times that producer Joe has done the rock on sign throughout this recording, you would be in stitches. So many of the band songs on their first three albums are about sex, drugs, and rock and roll that they start to push themselves to experiment with newer topics. So Nobody's Fault is a song that catalogs the band's fears of earthquakes and flying. Which to me just seems like desperate, just desperation. We need to write about something else. Anything else. And this album, despite how I've described its recording process to you, is extraordinarily successful. It will go all the way up to number three on the Billboard 200. It will go four times platinum, quadruple platinum. I know that word. Kurt Cobain, James Hetfield, and Slash. Kurt Cobain, the now late, not because he's tardy, because he's, he's dead. Now late? Did he die recently? Did I miss some news? Singer of Nirvana, James Hetfield, the present, but possibly tardy, lead singer and 
rhythm guitarist of Metallica. Yeah. And Slash, the guitarist of Guns N' Roses, they all cite Rocks as being a hugely influential album upon each of them. Well, I guess our tastes are just not good, as we'll talk about later when we get to the breakdown per album. Because objectively, all of those people have, have made some good music, and they seem to like this album. We don't know shit. It's obvious. If that wasn't obvious to you by now, listeners. 1977 rolls around. They are basking in the success of rocks, which now means they can afford more and more drugs. Steven Tyler claims that by this point, he spent a cool $64 million on drugs. Joe Perry says that's not true, but he does not come back with a number. And I mean, if you adjusted that for inflation, that's insane. Yeah, 1977. Yeah, absolutely not. Well, okay, well, now I have yeah, to ahead. do it. All right, calculate. So those $64 million in 1977 would be worth $274,997,227.72. Wow. That's like um, enough for a bachelor's degree. At a reasonable university. State affiliated. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'll crunch too. Are we doing a crunch break here? Yeah. Okay. No, I got shit to say. <laughs> so, as you might imagine, after ingesting somewhere in the neighborhood of $64 million worth of drugs, Stephen Tyler and Joseph Perry are essentially um, potatoes. And they become referred to as the Toxic Twins. And not because they like that Britney Spears song, but because they are toxic and volatile to each other and those around them. But they don't look alike. So maybe they're like fraternal twins? It should also be noted... That B.B. Buell, in this year, 1977, she was a former playmate, a model, and eventually a singer, gives birth to a baby named Liv. And Liv is the progeny of Steven Tyler. Oh. But B.B. Buell recognizes that Steven Tyler is a fucking dirtbag who is blowing $64 million, maybe on blow. And she is in a relationship with none other than Upper Darby's Todd Rundgren. At this time, who signs Liv's birth certificate as her father, despite suspecting that he is not, and pays for her to go to private school and college. Hmm. He didn't spend his money on a bunch of drugs. He spent it on private school and college. He probably spent some of his money on a bunch of drugs. What was this baby's name? She is born Liv Rundgren. 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 D in the middle? Yes. Okay. I think usually not pronounced. So Liv Tyler, somewhere between the ages of 9 and 11, will find out that Steven Tyler is her father. She didn't even know? Didn't know. She had to ask to find out. She said, hey, my lips are looking a little wide. I've been hitting a falsetto at inappropriate times, and I have the DTs for no reason. And I just spent $64 million on hash. (laughs) What's going on, Mom? It wasn't that she went to an open casting call for a woman to be objectified in an Aerosmith video, right? And that's how they found out? No, although that will happen. Okay. B.B. Buell breaks up with Todd Rundgren. They, They break up shortly after Liv is born, but Todd Rundgren remains a father figure in her life up till today. What an upstanding gentleman. After the success of their last two albums, their record company wants to do it again. But they realize that they're not going to be able to make this album with the band if they are totally strung out as they are. So they bring them to an abandoned convent outside of New York City. And the thinking was, they won't be able to get drugs there. The thing about drugs is that your dealer will deliver. 
Oh, I thought they burn up when they approach a holy site. Only cannabis, which is the devil's lettuce. And they, Aerosmith would never touch cannabis. No. You can't spend $64 million on cannabis. (laughs) I mean, you can. Where would you put it all? More than a lifetime supply. (laughs) For, For a small village. Joe Perry said, by this point, they were drug addicts dabbling in music rather than musicians dabbling in drugs. And he refers to this album, which will eventually be entitled Draw the Line, as the decay of their artistry. Essentially, there are days where Joe Perry and Steven Tyler can't even get out of bed because they are so strung out. Which, much like the previous album, forces Tom Hamilton and Brad Whitford and Joey Kramer to step up to record the entire album more or less themselves. That's not to say there's these spick and span Boy Scouts who aren't touching the stuff, but they're at least functional to a degree. But they drag the other two in sometimes to like get a vocal track. Every now and then, yeah. Joe Perry said the vast majority of the guitar playing is done by Brad Whitford on this album. And he said, it sounded great. So why did I have to get out of bed? (laughs) They did not have enough material despite these Herculean efforts from the band to call it like a full length album, which is what the record company demanded. So they're like, oh, we'll throw another couple of covers on here. Kokomo Arnold's Milk Cow Blues and Otis Rush's All Your Love were both recorded. Milk Cow Blues makes the album All Your Love Does Not. I thought you might enjoy this, Tyler, as an artist yourself. Al Hirschfield. He draws the cover. I was going to mention how much I like the cover for this. If you are not familiar with Al Hirschfield, he is a very famous artist. Any um, famous jazz musician character you've seen, it's probably Al Hirschfeld. He designed a great many Broadway covers, the original cover of The Wizard of Oz. He's a celebrated man, and he's now drawing the album for Aerosmith's Draw the Line on one of their most repugnant albums. Do you think Draw the Line is also what they said to him while he was he was drawing it? He sat down at a blank piece of paper and said, I don't know what to do. And they said, draw the line, Steven Al Hirschfeld. Tyler, you know, half asleep with a needle coming out of his arm. Draw the line. Despite the negative critical reviews, uh, this album will go to number 11 on the Billboard Top 200. Wow. In 1978, they appear in the film Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, in which the Beatles are disgraced by the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton (laughs) in a movie that, uh, saying that the plot is even loosely based upon the Beatles' music is a stretch, but that is what they purport is the case. The plot of this movie is that this band is fighting the music industry and evil forces try to steal their instruments and corrupt their hometown of Heartland there's almost no dialogue in the film aside from a disembodied narrator played by George Burns. Wow. All-star cast here. It kind of is. <laughs> Aerosmith appears in this film as the future villain band, which has kidnapped the heroine of the film and probably the heroine and tied her up to a neon pole and forced her to listen to their cover of Come Together, where halfway through the performance, they are attacked by the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton. However, Steven Tyler is knocked off the stage, along with Strawberry, sending both of them to their death. Here comes Aerosmith, literally dressed just, they are Aerosmith. They're not playing really a role, it seems. They didn't even dress them up. They look like Aerosmith meets the SS. Little bit. They are all wearing the same shirt. I gotta say, I don't hate Steven Tyler's vocals on this. Not terrible. Better than most Aerosmith songs because the Beatles wrote it. <laughs> right. 
I don't think it's this deep. But is this supposed to represent, you know, here's Aerosmith coming and usurping a Beatles song as the future villain band. Is this a commentary on what Aerosmith has done to rock music since, like, the era of the Beatles? It might just be who they're able to get. I probably. What, what else are you seeing? There's a tuba in front of them for some reason. That no one's playing. <laughs> I, oh, we have some people tied up. Who's tied up here? Not the Not the girl, but there's two people who are... The giant from Twin Peaks. Oh, that guy works. Anytime they need a tall person. Unsettling. Oh, they're waving what are essentially Nazi flags. There's an entire small army of people backing up Aerosmith here. This is disturbing. I'm really excited for them to get cut off halfway through, though. It's a pretty visually boring most of the time. It's just a close-up on the entire band playing. They're not even showing the neon sign, the exciting thing they've built on the stage. There's Steve Martin? What? But it's a giant black and white image of Steve Martin. Steve Martin's in this film. I gotta watch this movie. Some very strange acting from everybody involved. This was a feature film? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Steven Tyler appears to be strangling the woman they've kidnapped now. The Bee Gees are now storming the stage. Right, and their outfits are like Letterman jackets, but they're very, very bright and shiny. Okay, okay, good, it's over. Even even the Bee Gees, with Peter Frampton, they're still outnumbered by Aerosmith. So it's very brave of them there, to There are five members of Aerosmith, only four members of the Bee Gees plus Peter Frampton for but. some reason. And everyone knows in a fight, Frampton comes alive. That was for you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> 1979 rolls around, and they begin recording Night in the Ruts, which features America's sweetheart, a coal miner, on the cover. Steven Tyler is, again, incapacitated. He can't write lyrics. Joe Perry, by this point, has racked up $80,000 in room service fees. Jack Douglas, the producer, has divorced his wife, who the band all really liked. I apologize. I hate referring to someone as, like, their wife, but I cannot, for the life of me, find her first name. Columbia becomes extraordinarily impatient with Aerosmith by this point because they are just taking so long to produce this album. Every time they send an executive over to check in on them, they have nothing done. And they basically say, shape up or ship out, Hamilton. <laughs> you all will be soft-shoeing down 42nd Street if you keep it up this way. The album is supposed to come out in June. They don't get it out till November. But good things come to those who wait, right? No. <laughs> they have blown through so much of their budget during the early months of the production here. That they now have to go on tour to basically fundraise for the rest of the album. So now they also don't have time to get the album done because they're going on tour to finance the album and then racking up even more exorbitant hotel and room service fees throughout this course. So it's just a snake eating its tail, if you will. While they are recording Night in the Ruts and during this tour, they play at the World Series of Rock Festival at Cleveland Stadium. Is that supposed the, to mean something to me? The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in oh. Cleveland, Ohio. Joe Perry's wife, Alyssa Perry, gets into a fight with the bassist Tom Hamilton's wife and reportedly throws a glass of milk at her. The universal symbol for it's about to go down. Steven Tyler confronts Joe Perry about this and says this is a real problem. And depending on who you ask, this leads Joe Perry to either quit or be fired from the band. So Joe Perry, their lead guitarist, is no longer in the band. 
and they basically just have a rotating cast of studio musicians coming in to finish his parts. The record is not successful at all by Aerosmith standards. Again, even when they're bad, they're still on the Billboard Top 200, right? It does go gold at the time, and eventually it will become double platinum. No Surprise is about Steven Tyler's perception of how the band got started. It's like their origin story. Mia is about Steven Tyler's daughter of the same name. He has several children. Oh, yes. He has more. Yeah, he did, you know, with all that sex, this album will peak at number 14 on the Billboard Top 200. After Night in the Ruts comes out and the record industry and venue owners and promoters see that Aerosmith is kind of a fallen star, Joe Perry's out, they think the band's on the verge of dissolution, they start getting basically demoted to smaller and less prestigious venues, smaller crowds. Tyler's drug addiction is thriving like never before. And eventually he collapses during a show in Portland, Maine. Ooh, beautiful. In 1980. And just a few months later, he'll get into a motorcycle accident that's going to hospitalize him for two months. And that's the end. We Last anyone ever heard of Aerosmith, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the producer, Jack Douglas, comes back after taking uh, some time off on the past couple albums. This is the only record that Joe Perry is not on at all. Even in the Night in the Ruts, even though he quits, he's still on over half of the album. Brad Whitford leaves the band during this album, so they now have neither of the original guitarists. Studio musicians come in and do his parts now. Not usually a good sign for a band. When Brad Whitford leaves, he will join Joe Perry in Joe Perry's side project, very creatively called the Joe Perry Project. Oh, I was hoping for something like Smith Arrow. As you can imagine, now that they have lost both of their original guitarists, Stephen Tyler is collapsing and getting into motorcycle accidents. They're like D-list celebrities by this point. Although the record will still hit number 32 on the Billboard 200. These guys keep failing upwards. I mean, there just wasn't as much to listen to, right? (laughs) (laughs) And to me, this is where you start to hear Steven Tyler really take on that grittier sort of vocal quality where he's just sort of, um, I would say, a screaming banshee. (laughs) Is this perhaps not a stylistic choice, but a... It might be the, the uh, outcome of copious like, and drug use. his neck getting bent in his motorcycle accident. So Rock in a Hard Place comes out in 1982, and it will be three years until their next record comes out. In 1982, uh, Steven Tyler collapses again at a show in Massachusetts. And over the course of the next two years, it's just not looking great for the band. Playing pretty sparsely, not recording anything. It seems like the end is nigh. But 1984, Joe Perry returns to the band along with Brad Whitford. And the band goes for a change of pace. They sign to Geffen Records. They leave Columbia and go over to Geffen. And they envision this next record entitled Done With Mirrors as their big comeback. It's not. (laughs) This record does not do particularly well. But let's let's get into how this not particularly uh, successful record is recorded. They have a new producer on it named Ted Templeman. And Ted Templeman was a producer uh, for several Van Halen records. And he notices that Aerosmith, like many recording artists, I can attest to this and I think Joe can as well, that when you know you're being recorded, it makes you super self-conscious and more likely to mess up. So he basically deactivates all the recording lights in the studio and is just kind of recording them all the time. And many of the takes that you hear on Done With Mirrors are done live, one take, Hmm. limited overdubs. Is that the uh, origin of the title? So Done With Mirrors refers to the optical illusions that can and tricks that can be done with mirrors, but it also oh. is a reference to the fact that this is where they um, start to consider getting queen and being done with doing coke off of mirrors. Oh. Mm-hmm. 
the original album cover art is printed backwards, so you have to go to a mirror and you will see the reversed image and see the title. Nice little gimmick. <laughs> While the rest of the band was having a contentious relationship at this time, they had many issues that they had not really resolved, and now they're back together again. Producer Ted Templeman had a blast recording this album. He loved every minute of it. He does say that the record company Geffen, they kind of take a, a page out of the playbook of Columbia and they try to move them to an isolated place out in Berkeley instead of having them record in like San Fran or LA. And that does seem to be somewhat successful in staving off their rampant drug use. Also, they're you know just starting to become committed. You'll see there are many relapses throughout this uh, story. But they're, they're starting to entertain the idea of maybe we don't need to fuel our lifeblood with drugs. Nonstop. Ted Templeman uh, laments that it was done in this kind of far out Berkeley studio because he didn't really know the board. He didn't really know the preamps or anything he, because he wasn't familiar with the technology. He, to this day, says, I probably could have made it sound better. He uh, particularly is upset with how the guitar and the drum sound on that album. So he said, if it were in one of my studios where I'm a little more familiar, I'd be able to make it sound better. Hmm. But he, he had a great time. And this is the last Aerosmith album that they are going to write without the help of external songwriters. From 1985 on, they are going to have hired guns to write their songs for them, or or at least in large part write their songs oh, interesting. for them. interesting. Like Ted Templeman, um, Joe Perry and uh, Joey Kramer did not like the record. Kramer said it's not even really finished. He's like, there's a lot of things we meant to do and we just never got around to. Mm-hmm. Joe Perry said it's our least inspired record. Done With Mirrors will go gold. It'll hit number 36 on the Billboard 200. In 1986, Rick Rubin is working with a trio out of Hollis, Queens, none other than Run DMC. And he has the idea to do a collaboration, a collabo, if you will. Thank you for putting that in terms I understand. Between Aerosmith and Run DMC. He nominates Walk This Way. Most people in Run DMC are not into it. Yeah, it's a strange mashup. Aerosmith's yeah. washed up. And Aerosmith goes along with it. The catch is, for the music video for this mashup, Run DMC cannot afford all five members of Aerosmith. <laughs> so it is only when you watch the music video, which I encourage you to do, you're only seeing Steven Tyler and Joe Perry the backing band that, that they, okay, they had enough money to hire a band, just not all of Aerosmith. Mm-hmm. So they are playing in front of a group called Smashed Gladys. Wow. If you were the other <laughs> members of Aerosmith, wouldn't you be so pissed off at Steven Tyler and Joe Perry? And this odd mashup here helps reinvigorate Aerosmith's career. It cannot be overstated how important this is to their resurgence. Again, they're kind of nobodies. Their big return album, Done With Mirrors, did not do remotely as well as they were hoping. And now they're on the board again. They're getting heavy rotation on MTV. And they're also really making a commitment to get clean. Steven Tyler is kind of spearheading that effort. They have this newfound market. And this is really the beginning of their comeback, where they are truly becoming relevant again. Now, I feel like this music video sometimes is overstated as being culturally important because they, you know, ham-handedly literally break through a brick wall that perhaps signifies, you know, these, you know, old school rock fans and, you know, this more modern hip hop fan. Do you think that's overblown? (laughs) 
I, I think maybe. I, I also think, hey, that's cool. In 1980s America, sure, why not? Go for it. I think it's a great, lovely thing. I think it was more important to Aerosmith's career than oh. it was to bridging the racial divide in America. <laughs> um, I think they solved it. So to help facilitate their rise to the top, as I had mentioned before, they are working with professional songwriters. Permanent Vacation. Steven Tyler claims it's the first album we ever did sober. They're working with Bruce Fairbairn. He has a lot of connections with these outside songwriters, so he kind of has a much easier time getting these people in there and scouting out the talent who are going to come in and work with Aerosmith. She had the body of a Venus. Lord, imagine my surprise. Those are some choice lyrics from Dude Looks Like a Lady. From the transphobic masterpiece. Well, here's the thing. I, I was expecting that as well. Desmond Venus is the songwriter uh, on this album who, who co-wrote the lyrics with Steven Tyler. The original lyrics and the original title for the song were Cruisin' for the Ladies. Oh, it, fits it fits the cadence. Ooh. The band was out at a bar checking out this girl at the end of the bar. Beautiful, blonde, flowing locks. And she turns around and it is Vince Neil from Motley Crue. Oh. Steven Tyler recounts the story to Desmond Venus, who thinks it's great, and they come up with Dude Looks Like a Lady, which is building off of that. It's about a trans stripper, and it ends with intercourse when the subject, the narrator of the story, finds out that they are trans, and then they have sex. All right, I take it back. It's not as transphobic as you might expect hmm. for 1987. Permanent Vacation. It goes multi-platinum, hits number 11 on the Billboard 200, number 14 on the Billboard Hot 100 with Dude Looks Like a Lady, and number three on the Billboard Hot 100 with Angel. This, this album has some jams. They go on tour with Guns N' Roses, which did not help their temptation of doing drugs, because <laughs> while they are trying to get straight at this time, Guns N' Roses is anything but. So that's going to cause some relapses. Following their tour with Guns N' Roses, they are going to start sitting down and coming up with new material, which will eventually evolve into the record entitled Pump in 1989. They're writing Pump on the road. Steven Tyler essentially says he's making up for lost time because he was so high he couldn't get his penis erect on the previous album, so he wasn't having sex. Geffen recognizes the blue subject matter of this thinly veiled album. And they choose not to print the lyrics on the album sheets because they don't want parents to not buy this record for the kids. There already was a small band called Pump, and they sue Aerosmith for this album, uh, but Aerosmith ends up winning out. They're also then sued by the songwriting collaborative Holland Dozier Holland because they claim that the other side is a ripoff of Shadows of Love. Aerosmith actually gives them songwriting credit. During the recording process of Pump, they also have a film crew in there with them documenting it, which as producer Joe just pointed out to me, is almost two hours in length. And basically this entire film is the band being very catty and irritated with one another to the point where at times band members will storm off and out of the studio. Following Pump, they start going on TV more. They appear on SNL 
most notably in the Wayne's World skit, where they talk about the fall of communism in the Soviet Union, because it is 1989. David Fincher, the director of Fight Club, directs the music video for Janie's Got a Gun. Janie's Got a Gun, by the way, is about incest and murder, and it wins a Grammy. Loving an Elevator. Becomes number one on the mainstream rock tracks, and they have three top 10 Billboard 100 singles during this time. And it hits number five on the Billboard 200. Deservedly. In 1991, they appear on The Simpsons in an episode entitled Flaming Moes. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, some new buddies of mine stopped by tonight. Maybe we can get them to come up here. How about a warm Flaming Moes welcome for Aerosmith? Have you seen this episode? I have, and it, it's an iconic episode because of the Flame and Moe's thing, but this is some of the worst voice acting for people who <laughs> sing professionally, although it's, it's a lot of times the rest of the band that isn't so great. Their mm. takes are so... This happens on The Simpsons a lot. Anytime they put a guest star in who's maybe not so comfortable on mic, oh, it's awful. And following this episode of The Simpsons, they begin work on their next album entitled Get a Grip. Could you describe the album cover? So this is a cow's udder. Is it pierced? It is pierced. So there's a ring. And this sparked a lot of controversy because animal activist groups were worried that this was real. And it turns out the band made a statement. They said it's a, it's it's a composite a image. It's not real. Yeah. They did back then. They record the record in 1992 and the label basically says there's no hits on here go back and do it again (laughs) this is going to be a trend for them all throughout the 90s where the record company they turn something in the record company says no and they bring in even more outside help and they really diminish Aerosmith's role in their music wow it's it's Kind of like that whole cliche of like, you're selling out if you sign with a record. That really is what happens to Aerosmith. They do give up a great deal of artistic control in exchange for success. As we learn here, though, sometimes that's okay. This is their first record that debuts at number one on the Billboard 200 charts. Hmm. So it's right off the bat, a massive success. And it will eventually go double diamond, selling 20 million copies worldwide. What does that do for their ego? The album where they've had the least amount of input is a huge It's got to be depressing. Hit, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think they cared. No, <laughs> they they still get to look like they did everything and sure. no one no one really knows what's going on behind the scenes. Until now. <laughs> Crying and Living on the Edge both hit number 1 on the Billboard mainstream rock tracks. They win a Grammy for Living on the Edge and Crazy and they're both for the categories of best rock performance by a duo. My yuck icky track is Eat the Rich because it is absolute bullshit that these guys are so far after they and their descendants for like the next five generations will never have to work again. After they have blown $64 million, like a small nation's GDP on drugs, they have the nerve to say, eat the rich. Wow. I, it's not even like in a um, tongue-in-cheek or a satirical sort of way. It's just, it's nonsense, and I hate it. I hate the song so, so much. This is also when they appear in Wayne's World 2. Mm. They are in the Stretch Mirthmobile, which is a gremlin. They make a music video for a song called Crazy, in which Steven Tyler's daughter, Liv Tyler, 
Liv Rundgren Tyler. He treats her with respect and puts her in an appropriate um, scene, right? Yes. Uh, she is essentially topless in a oh, topless car, no. driving around with another actress and uh, picking up boys. It's, uh, Alicia Silverstone from Clueless. I yes, believe, yes. Right? An interesting bit of uh, early internet history for you. Aerosmith becomes the first major act to have an exclusive only digital download for their song Head First, which takes several hours to download <laughs> on year? the internet. 1994. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's impressive. And they, they have over 10,000 downloads early on. They also have a video game come out oh, entitled heart. Revolution X, as he says. Stop this nonsense now if you don't want to deal with me. If you're watching this, then they've taken over. Find our car and stop the new order. What is the plot line of Revolution X, Tyler? So in Revolution X, you as the player, and up to four players can do this on an arcade, it's a gun, you know, a light gun arcade game. You are for some reason tasked with fighting the New World Order who have come in and tried to usurp, uh, you know, I guess control over at least the United States, maybe the entire world's governments. (laughs) I don't know why, but Aerosmith plays a role in this game, not as characters you play as, but they help you out. So you see them playing, um, and then at one point, I think Steven Tyler gives you his keys. They all have speaking roles, and it's insane. What I remember about this game, I had the Sega Genesis version and always kind of liked it, and I don't know why. I don't know if I mentioned this at the beginning when you asked me why pick Aerosmith. This game definitely had something to do with that, because I played this a lot, still not understanding who Aerosmith is, why they have a game, or any of that. But I learned recently, preparing for this episode, the, like, crappy quality of the sound in the game is only because I was playing the Genesis port. This was an arcade game, and it, it's that amazing. I got the emulator amazing. for it. No, it does. It has CD quality audio when you play it on the arcade. The visuals look good. It's pretty incredible. What you may have not known, as I didn't prior to this, is that wasn't their only video game in 1994. What? They had a second game. What do you see? Holy yeah. macaroni. This is rock band, basically. It's Guitar Hero. Oh, right. It looks like Guitar Hero. Well, one guy is playing a um, tennis, a tennis racket. racket. and So here's the deal. <laughs> the game is essentially a large pick that was connected to your computer. Oh my. So you could shell out extra money and get the plastic guitar it came with, or you could just do it on your leg or anything else that you could hit the pick up against. What is this called? Quest for Fame. <laughs> and unlike Guitar Hero, in which commands pop up on a screen and you have to touch buttons with your left hand, or I guess right hand if you are, you know, left-handed, and you strum with the other. In this game, you only strum. There is, you are doing nothing with your other hand. Mm. So essentially, just a mark pops up on the screen along with an Aerosmith song, and you just make sure that you hit the pick against an object at that point. The the guitar they sold with it did not help you in any way. For 1994, it's pretty impressive. They appear in Beavis and Butthead this year, (laughs) and they also play Woodstock 94. So they are really hitting all the cultural touchstones of the mid-90s. They're back, baby. And on the heels of this massively successful comeback, another successful record, they prep up for the next record, which is going to come out in 1997, called Nine Lives, which is recorded in Miami. As usual, they have a rotating cast of collaborators coming in and writing their music for them. They go back to Columbia Records. Columbia Records doesn't like the original thing they turned in in 1996. And they have to 
re-record the entire album. Oh my god. Because Joey Kramer leaves the band because his father passed away and he's dealing with a lot of issues and he's basically too depressed to play. So they tried to do it with some fill-in musicians. That's the thing they turned into Columbia. Columbia doesn't like how it sounds. Joey comes back and they re-record the entire album. Even the tracks they're going to keep, they're redoing the entire thing. They fire their manager at this time, Tim Collins. So, um, you know, that's causing a lot of strife and anger within the band and they're basically getting frustrated with each other yet again a common theme throughout we've been down this road before this album is originally called vindaloo because there is marked inspiration from indian music throughout they even get ramesh mishra to play the sarangi on the album which is a stringed indian instrument and Again, to go a step further, they want to pay homage to Indian culture. So they devise an album cover, which they think does just that, where they take a sacred image of Krishna dancing on the snake demon Kaliya's head. But they instead of Krishna's face, they impose a cat's face over to it because the album is called Nine Lives. The cat uh, has boobs, of course. (laughs) However, I will say you can look at it here, Tyler. For Aerosmith, the boobs are not nearly as big as I expected. Yeah, it's a tasteful uh, desecration of the sacred art. As you might expect, people within the Hindu community um, are very upset by this, and the record company basically says, sorry, 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 we'll have them fix it, and instead you get just a cat with a bunch of knives around. Yeah, it's a cartoon (laughs) of a cat like on a, a carnival where the knife thrower would be. It comes out number one on the Billboard 200. It goes double platinum. I don't want to miss a thing. My yummy yum will be their next big hit in 1998 on the Armageddon soundtracks. Uh, Armageddon was a film starring Liv Tyler, who will also appear in the music video for that song. They're back together, collaborating. As with pretty much all these songs, Aerosmith did not write the song. Uh, The words were written by a woman named Diane Warren, who has pumped out a lot of jams, and she is inspired by an interview that Barbara Walters does of Barbara Streisand and James Brolin, where James Brolin says when Barbara Streisand is sleeping he misses her get a life very brief story about this song when i was in college my dorm room freshman year was often associated with like we'd ho- we'd watch movies a lot and he said weed several times and we'd we'd keep the door propped and people could come and go and we, there'd be movies hosted frequently in my dorm we had a futon people like to come over and watch movies people we knew people we didn't know that was the thing at one point during one of these movie nights a another person who lived on the floor i won't name them we'll call them barbara uh, he comes in barbara and he says hey <laughs> I don't want to watch the movie, but can I just like sit behind your futon and do some work on my laptop? I just need a space. I don't know why he would pick a room with a movie on. It seems distracting. Puts his headphones in. Sure, go ahead. So he's sitting behind the futon. We hear him clacking away on his keyboard. And then he puts headphones in and I I start to notice I'm hearing, I don't want to miss a thing. But at this time, I wasn't that familiar with it. I had heard it as a kid, hadn't really listened to it since. I'm like, what is that song? I recognize that. And I started to notice it was going on very long, like 10 minutes go by. And I know it's a long song, but it's not 10 minutes long. 20 minutes go by. The entire movie goes by. He was listening to Don't Want to Miss a Thing on repeat for an hour and a half while doing work. And we never, I should have asked Barbara if he was okay, because that seems like something you'd only do if you were going through a breakup or I don't know what. I can't imagine why on earth you would want to listen to it for that long. And I like it. Let's do that after this. (laughs) You already brought us through it, but 1999 in Disney World, Florida. 
The Rock and Roller Coaster, starring Aerosmith, which is its full title. Of course. The Rock and Roller Coaster, starring Aerosmith. You know there were some tense negotiations to get that title. (laughs) Opens up in 1999. (laughs) It goes from zero to 57 miles per hour (laughs) in 2.5 seconds. That really sums up Aerosmith. They just couldn't get the zero to 60. (laughs) It is called The Rock and Roller Coaster Avec Aerosmith (laughs) in Disney World Paris. There's a par- a Parisian version oh, of it. Oh yes. Oh yes. Are there any changes <clears throat> do you know? I can't say between Paris and here. Um I can tell you that there are variations if you are riding in Florida because each car has a different license plate. And depending on which license plate car you were on, you will hear a different Aerosmith song. Let's go over some of those license plates. One QKLIMO, one quick limo, plays nine lives. U G O B A B E, you go babe, plays love in an elevator. Yu Gi Oh babe, it plays the Blue Eyes White Dragon song. Love in an elevator and walk this way. B U H B Y E, bye bye, plays young lust. H eight T R F C, hate traffic. Uh, <laughs> Plays back in the saddle and dude looks like a lady. And two F A S T for you, too fast for you, plays Sweet Emotion, the live version, as featured in A Little South of Sanity. Now, boys, I have some sad and somber news, maybe. In September of 2019, the Rock and Roller Coaster was supposed no. to make its last voyage. No. However, today, on November 14th, 2020, I looked up the Rock and Roller Coaster and it said it opened today at 11 a.m. So either they haven't <laughs> updated their page or maybe it's back because of COVID. I don't know. I rode Rock and Roller Coaster five times in a row in 2008 and I think I heard every song. I did not know about the differences in songs though ahead of time. It's just had the shortest line. They did miss an opportunity for the beginning of the ride to be Steven Tyler's gigantic mouth and you go into it. Um, you're like visiting Aerosmith in their studio and they're like, hey, we want to play our new songs for you. And the, their manager comes in who is a stereotypically catty, offensively so, like just breaking your balls, um, who basically says, you got to get to your show right now. And they're like, but we're hanging out with our fans. And the manager's like, fuck your fans. You got to get to your show. And Aerosmith says, but we love our fans. I got an idea. Come with us. And that's the ride. You're just commuting. <laughs> yes. With Aerosmith. Uh, I want to point out in Revolution X, the final boss, the head of the New World Order, is the same type of woman, possibly the same actress. She turns into an actual bulldog after you fight her for a while. I would say in 2000, this whole idea of like the record company is really making the music hits its peak in 2000 on their coming record, Just Push Play, which will come out the following year. The band's not even in the same room anymore when they record these albums. The album art, though, pretty cool. The record cover of Just Push Play was designed by Hajime Soriyama. And if you look at his other work. It's a lot of stuff that looks like this. A lot of people compare it to that iconic picture of Marilyn Monroe uh, from Seven Year Itch, where she's like over the grate and uh, it's blowing her dress up. And, you know, she's bashfully putting her hands down to cover up her nether regions. This isn't even the first time this 
exact picture was used on an album cover in uh, the mid-1980s. There was a compilation album called Video Sound, which Aerosmith was not a part of, and this is the album cover for it. It just doesn't say Aerosmith on it. Joe Perry hates this record. Um, he very much attributes this. He seems to hate a lot of those. You know, records. I don't agree with Joe Perry often, but... He basically says this is how to not make an Aerosmith album, um, because he says, we sound great together. Why did we do this ramshackle approach where it's all piecemeal? It goes to number two on the Billboard 200, but it doesn't have any what? singles that hit the charts. I know, it's. I think um, people get excited about an Aerosmith album coming out and they buy it, but it doesn't generate commercial success with their singles. They're not getting a lot of airtime, not a lot of video play, so on and so forth. As you may have noticed, this came out in 2001, so they play a show for the victims of 9-11. They also contribute the song Lizard Love to the soundtrack of Rugrats Go Wild. They're inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. Wait, we need to go back to Rugrats Go Wild. <laughs> Aerosmith is on the soundtrack of Rugrats oh, yeah. Go Wild. What is this song about? I don't recall it from our listening. Lizard Love. It's not what it sounds like, right? This isn't about <laughs> lizards doing what they do in the They've written about curve. cowboys, trucks, and robots doing it. Why not lizards? They're inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. To date, they are the only band to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame while they're actively on the charts. Usually you're past your prime when you get inducted. Aerosmith's been past their prime even while they're on the charts. So. Steven Thomas Erlewine from All Music criticized this album and the band for not acting their age. Because they're like 50 at this point. Right. Arrow wine sounds like the uh, wine that they put their logo on, the Aerosmith wine label. <laughs> the following year, they will perform at the FIFA World Cup in Tokyo. That following February, they will perform alongside Britney Spears, Mary J. Blige, and Nelly, very rock and roll, at Super Bowl... 35 XXXV. You know, I normally would say what a weird combination, but they, they made their bones with uh, Run DMC, so they're they're successful when they uh, combine with groups you wouldn't expect. Hunkin' on Bobo, this record is a cover record. There are 11 blues cover tracks on this album and one original song called The Grind. Jack Douglas, their original producer from the 70s, he comes back and he's recording them at... Joe Perry's Ranch, which is just outside of Boston. Very apropos from a band that had a song called Eat the Rich. Steven Tyler plays a lot of harmonica on this record, and I never really pointed out, but Steven Tyler is a multi-instrumentalist. Steven Tyler writes Dream On on a piano. He plays piano on a lot of songs. He plays harmonica on a lot of songs. And this record, he's just ripping harmonica pretty much the whole way through. Do they have to make an oversized harmonica? And the limited edition version of this album comes with a keychain harmonica. It hits number five on the Billboard Top 200, which for 2004, like consider what's popular in 2004. That's incredible. That is nuts that it's that high up. Name recognition. Mm -hmm. And it will hit number one on the U.S. Blues Albums chart. How poppin' is the Blues Album chart in... Like, how many other it's, albums are there? There was there? only one other album <laughs> that year. <laughs> I mean, good for them. I get it. They're they're very bluesy-inspired band. We didn't really talk too much about that. After Honkin' on Bobo, it's going to be eight years until their next and to-date final album. So what happens in between that time? In 2006, Steven Tyler gets throat surgery. They reconvene in 2007. They go on their first world tour in a decade. And it's here. In 2006, the band is rumored to start working on their next album, the follow-up to Honkin' on Bobo. They put out a live album and a compilation album instead. They then go on tour to support those albums with Motley Crue. In 2007, they do another world tour. 
and they return to the studio and they say, we're finally going to work on this album. 2008 rolls around. They say, we're going to work on this album. <laughs> Instead, they put out Guitar Hero Aerosmith version. Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> Which, I mean, if, if any band is going to have a Guitar Hero vanity project, it should probably I mean, be Aerosmith who, who uh, foresaw this back in 94. Wow, and easy game because basically all the songs are the same. So if you can play one, you can ace them all. Tyler says, following the drop of the Guitar Hero game, that we're going to finish the album this year. They don't. It implies that he had any work to do on Guitar Hero. That he did, didn't do shit. He just Sitting had to there, license so He was songs. hitting the zeros and the ones and coding <laughs> it all. He's like, I haven't made a game since Revolution <laughs> X. Got to brush up. In 2009, Joe Perry has a knee injury. And they kind of say this is why we can't tour or work on the album because the guitars hurt his knee, which you famously need to play guitar. <laughs> Eventually, they will go on tour in 2009. There is still no album. Throughout the tour, the band is hurting themselves because they're old. <laughs> in what ways? Do you have any examples? Yes. In South Dakota, they play a show where Steven Tyler is on stage after some rain and he slips off while he's twirling around on the stage and he falls off and he is so injured that he has to be airlifted to the hospital from the show. That's some old man energy right there. And he says his bandmates don't have the nerve to visit him in the hospital. Because they still hate each other? or Trouble in paradise wow. is what this is indicating, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'd ever use And by, by trouble in paradise, I mean, you know, for 40 years they've been at each other's throats and it's still going on. Joe Perry, instead of visiting Steven Tyler in the hospital, goes and makes a solo record. Joey Kramer, the drummer, writes an autobiography aptly entitled Hit Hard. And this is where the rumor mill starts going again that they're going to break up. And the band approaches none other than Lenny Kravitz to take over for Steven Tyler. And Lenny Kravitz says no. <laughs> Wise man. Well, Lenny Kravitz has a lot of projects going on at this time. So even if he had the interest, I don't even know if he would have had the time. He has a fashion line going on, a media production company. He's getting into acting. The Guitar Hero Lenny Kravitz edition was famously in the works. The band puts these rumors to rest because during a show of the Joe Perry Project. Steven Tyler joins Perry on stage and they play Walk This Way together. The Joe Perry Project has persisted all this time. I thought oh, it was jo done deal when they reunited. You cannot stop the Joe Perry Project. Wow. We're gonna, next episode, guys, we're going to do a deep dive no, on the Joe no, Perry Project. No, I, I if I knew it was here, I would have listened to them for this. And at the end of the year in 2009, after Steven Tyler had sustained so many injuries, he ends up going to rehab because during his injuries, he becomes addicted to painkillers. In 2010, Joe Perry says they are auditioning people to replace Steven Tyler. So within a few months after saying, no, everything's fine, things do not seem to be fine. Steven Tyler has his lawyers send the band a cease and desist notice saying, stop saying that he's out of the band or you'll face legal action. And the band does what they always do when they fall in hard times. They go on tour. And during that tour, Steven Tyler auditions for it and is named the newest judge on American Idol. He does not tell the band this, and they find out from the press. And they are livid because, again, they are now almost five years into this album that they have not put out and have not really put any effort into putting out. And they're very concerned that Steven Tyler will not have time for both. And Jack Douglas returns again from Honkin' on Bobo, and he's going to record them on this last record. And this is their last album that they are contractually obligated to do with Sony and Columbia Records. And again, it has been 
well, almost so. a, almost a decade since since this record came out, and it is entitled "Music from Another Dimension." They're bopping back and forth between playing shows, trying to record this album, and Stephen Tyler doing his gig on American Idol. Tyler does have to cancel a show after he falls in the shower and harms his face, and then he also says he's losing his teeth from food poisoning. <laughs> food poisoning. <laughs> Early 2012, the American Idol season finale comes on TV. <laughs> we all remember. And Steven Tyler seizes the opportunity to play Legendary Child at the conclusion of someone else winning a show. <laughs> the song will later be reworked and the lyrics changed to celebrate the New England Patriots football team. <laughs> The album then gets pushed back to November because people have already been waiting seven years for this. Instead of putting the album out, they play a Walmart shareholders meeting with Cheap Trick, which is very rock and roll. Eat the rich, guys. Good job. Um, Aerosmith, I expect that from. I'm disappointed in Cheap Trick. (laughs) The album finally drops in late 2012. And Perry says, it sounds like dinosaurs eating cars. Musical dinosaurs with a sick beat. Julian Lennon, Carrie Underwood, and Johnny Depp are all on the album singing. It goes to number five on the Billboard 200 and number one on the top rock albums. No single successes again. Here's what I want to know. How many shares of Walmart do I need to buy to be invited (laughs) to the meeting? Is it like one, two? Because I would go. In 2015, three years after Music from Another Dimension comes out, Steven Tyler puts out a country record. Joe Perry joins the Hollywood Vampires with now Aerosmith collaborator Johnny Depp. Tom Hamilton joins Thin Lizzy and Pearl Jam. I think he wins out here. Joey Kramer uh, has a rockin' and roastin' coffee business. That's literally what it's called. And Brad Whitford uh, makes a duet album. In 2016, they announced their farewell tour, which goes on through 2019. And in 2020, despite the fact that they said they were breaking up, they begin a residency in Las Vegas called Deuces Are Wild. And it's supposed to end in July 2020. Well, what also happens early oh, in the no, spring. They're trapped. <laughs> They get inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, Joe Perry and Stephen Tyler. Bet you didn't see that coming. And they quit because that's what it's been about all along. <laughs> and Finally. that's it. Um, it is unclear what is going to happen with Aerosmith because they said they were going to perform the shows that were canceled because of the COVID-19 epidemic. And every time they've tried to reschedule them, it has been shut down. Right. So presumably they are sitting there in Las Vegas yeah. on stage just waiting <laughs> stuck. to go. 2020 also marks the 50th year of Aerosmith performing as a band. Do you have any concluding remarks about this wild ride of Aerosmith? I mean, just like, I didn't know all the drama from the recent years. Like, that's shocking to me. Why would you try to replace the lead singer of a band, no matter how corny that band is? At least they're smart enough businessmen to constantly reunite and go on tour. Like, good for them, I guess. Grow up. Grow up, boys. Each episode, we like to highlight the up-and-coming work of a discography-developing diva. Today, that is Meet the Bug. Meet the Bug is a bedroom pop solo project 
It is heavily inspired by Cave Town. Meet the Bug combines candor and queerness to create songs that can be sweet, light, and wholesome, kind of like me, yet also emotionally deep and complex. Hold your tongue. It is now time to like pina coladas and get caught in the rain with Meet the Bugs track, Nothing Permanent. And cuts across your fingers Charlie horse and chili nose And chaplips in the winter Allergies and achy bones And athletes in your sneakers All the things that hurt you All the things that make you weaker Tell someone you miss them Tell them that you wanna see them There's no use in waiting You know anything can happen I am nothing permanent And neither are you either See, rest your head, close your eyes, think of Saturday instead. In this life that we live, overwork, and you're as good as dead. Raise your hand if you felt like a tool, a cog in a machine. Pretty, be attractive for the neighbors Fuck if you don't know them Everybody is a stranger Help yourself to me And help yourself to all my sisters Kiss them on the cheek Because they've all got fever blisters Every single morning After lunch and after dinner Panic in the bathroom Point your flaws out in the mirror I am nothing permanent And neither are you more from Meet the Bug, contact us to submit your own music for consideration, view our citations, listen to a playlist of our favorite Aerosmith songs, and support Deep Dive Divas by following the links in this episode's show notes. We have ranked each studio album by Aerosmith on a scale of 1 to 10. What is the best Aerosmith record, in your opinion? The best. Shit, let me get my chart. My, my biggest pick here is Pump. Why? 
Uh, just, I mean, just strictly from uh, what I would listen to again perspective, as I went through and listened to all these and, and kind of clicked the add to playlist as something came up that I said, okay, I'll listen to that again if I have to. Uh, Pump by far outperformed most of their other albums. Uh, I, I like the sound. And what I'm struggling with as I, as I did this whole process is, do I like the sound of those like mid-90s, late-80s, early to mid-90s Aerosmith records because that's the Aerosmith that I remember, that I first heard? Or do I actually like that sound? And I don't know if I can separate those two ideas. I think I do like that sound. It's probably because it reminds me of you know, a simpler time in my life when all I had to do was watch Robin Williams movies and play Sega Genesis. But that's to me is their peak, like, uh, you know, the, the recognizable 80s, 90s Aerosmith sound to me is Pump. Uh, my favorite record was Nine Lives because for me, it sounds different from every other Aerosmith <laughs> record. Over the course of 15 records, you need that. You need some sort of a palate cleanser. I appreciate that they tried things, even if it was ill-conceived and potentially <laughs> offensive. I appreciate that they were looking outward instead of just saying, let's do blues rock over and over and right. over again. And see, I picked nothing from that. Though I agree with you, it's different. Not one song on Nine Lives jumped out to me to even favorite. It is my top record with a score of two out of ten. <laughs> Which brings us to our least favorite record. Can you choose one? So this is a, let me see how many ways tie. One, two, three, four, five. So this is a six-way tie between <laughs> uh, rocks, draw the line, Rockin' a Hard Place, Done With Mirrors, and uh, Nine Lives, and Honkin' on Bobo. That's a, uh, a perfect tie for me. Just, I literally did not pick a single song. They all rate, rated zero for me on our one to 10 scale. I have a 10-way tie <laughs> for number one worst album. albums. So many times through this, Tyler, I had to re-listen to a record because I got to the end of it and said, there were different songs here. I thought this had been the same song. I thought I was on track one. And it just never stopped because it just sounds the same. And here's my thing. I don't like the blues. And that is not a popular opinion to have. Joe hates my guts for not liking the blues. The reason I don't like the blues is to me, it is extraordinarily formulaic and predictable. And because of that, boring. Where's it going to go now? It's going to go up to the fifth. That's 95% of Aerosmith's songs that I just performed for you in some way or another. I think the lyrics are uninspired. It's just sex, drugs, and rock and roll. When they attempt to get outside of those categories, it just feels inauthentic and not believable. Even when talented artists are writing for them, now, I don't think they pull it wait off. Wait a minute. You don't think they're truly afraid of flying? Earthquakes. <laughs> That's too, like, then you have nowhere to go. If you're too afraid of the ground and you're too afraid to fly, where are you supposed to go? And, and look, I am a millennial soy boy who doesn't drink alcohol, I don't think this music's for me. I don't think I'm the intended audience. I think if I were going out with a bunch of my buddies and we were going cruising for chicks at the bar and drinking beers <laughs> and I just want to party and have a good time, I think this is great music for that. That has not been my human experience thus far in life. Maybe that'll come for me. It's so lame. I feel like 
there is no true intended audience for this. But that's what I, I, my favorite Aerosmith stuff is like the corniest, lamest, most corporate version of their sex, drugs, and rock and roll, boring blues rock that they've done. I don't know. Maybe I'm just almost ironically enjoying it, but I don't think so. Like when I hear uh, Love in an Elevator, it's kind of fun, you know? Yeah, and it's it's kind of got that like a uh, Phil Spector wall of sound thing mm-hmm. going on where like you can't help but just it's a wave that's overtaking right. you even if and it's you can't the same wave it. over and over sure. and over it now has again. a brass section <laughs> whereas especially those early records it's just standard straight blues like, rock they sound bored to me in the, yeah. the first couple albums except for a few standouts they sound like so apathetic about their own music and and i don't want to ever yuck someone else's yum i'm saying this music's not for me i don't get it you can look at my taste in music and say what the hell you like devo what's that from my perspective there doesn't seem to be an evolution here from 1970 to 2012 i don't detect them growing in any way. Where, where, where there are evolutions, it's because they're bringing in outside hired help, right. you know, which just seems so inauthentic to me. And this whole idea of like being a salt of the earth, eat the rich, working class guy from Boston. I think they were that for like five minutes. So thank you for wasting all of my time. <laughs> <laughs> really? This was a big prank. A solid well, so week. We didn't talk about this yet on Mike, but you know, for a while, I mean, how long have we been planning on doing this? We started this in June. Right. It's now November. So for a while, I think you were under the impression that I just like said it just to make you listen to all of Aerosmith. And I was like, what an idiot. But I really was listening to it right along with you. Uh, <laughs> but I had the same problems, like especially on some of those like drug albums where you're listening and you're like, did I finish this album or did I just start this album? Right, right. Is this rocks or is this draw the line? I don't know. But I'm really having a night in the ruts right now trying oh, to listen to them. Oh, terrible. It's rough. Terrible. Uh, Tyler, thank you for upsetting scores of dads with me with our, our bad opinions. Dads everywhere. Dads hate them. <laughs> Those deep dive diva guys. <laughs> but they sure love some Aerosmith. Yeah. Dream on, Ty. No, I got nothing. I ha- I, I want to miss a thing here, a few things. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that Joe Perry was seen near his food before. <laughs> Joe Perry had a line of hot sauces, which I've eaten in my life. Yes, he was on Emerald. He promoted his hot sauces on Emerald and Johnson's show. Bam. <laughs>